To me, perhaps the most radical statement you have made is that we are not, if I have understood correctly, responsible for the thoughts that come into our heads, that they are not the product of our character. Please say more about what is the proper conception of character. I hope we're not the thoughts that come through our heads. (laughs) Because if we are, we're in big trouble. (laughs) I think that the... that the thoughts that come through have clearly been conditioned by something. They've been conditioned by different causes, either... uh, from our background or childhood or environment or past lives. But I think that has much less to do with character than the choices that we make with respect to these thoughts. And that's really where mindfulness gives us so much uh, strength and so much freedom because it allows us the possibility of not just acting habitually acting blindly on the energy of all these uninvited thoughts, but we can choose. Even when we have chosen wrongly you know, in the past, in the moment of awakening to the possibility of mindfulness, right in that moment, what we could call a character shift or a character change takes place. There's one story from the Buddhist times which really illustrates just how dependent upon conditions um, different actions, different choices are made and the possibility of coming out of conditioning It's the story of this one bright young student who went to study with a teacher. Um, in in the, the custom of those times, became a disciple of this one teacher. And he was by far the most brilliant of the students. And all of the other students, or many of them, became jealous of this one and started poisoning the mind of the teacher against him. Till finally the teacher... Uh, sort of dismissed him, kicked him out. It must have called up some very deep pattern of anger and hatred and resentment in in this student. He went off and he vowed revenge. And he became... quite an infamous murderer... His name was Angulimal, which means garland of fingers. Because the story is quite complex, but part of the story was he took this vow to collect the garland of a thousand fingers to give back to his teacher. (laughs) And so he's proceeding along this path, very fierce, very violent, killed 999 people. And his mother started walking through the forest where uh, he was living 
and he was about to kill her, you know, to, to finish the garland of a thousand fingers. Somehow the Buddha who was in the vicinity came to know of what was happening. And through the Buddha's psychic power, he appeared in front of Angulimala. And Angulimala said, well, I'll get the thousandth finger from this fellow. And he started running after the Buddha, but no matter how fast he ran, even though the Buddha was walking very slowly, lifting, moving, placing, (laughs) (laughs) just due to the psychic power of the Buddha, Angulimala could never catch up. And finally, Angulimal shouted, uh, stop. And the Buddha said, I have stopped. It's you who have not stopped. And just in that moment, in seeing the fearlessness and the peace and the compassion of the Buddha, Angulimala inquired what that was all about. The Buddha went on to teach about the stopping of the fires of greed and hatred and delusion. Angulimala became a monk, became ordained, and within quite a short time became fully enlightened. So there's hope for all of us. (laughs) It just points to me that, you know, we have all of these different seeds in the mind. There are wholesome seeds and there are unwholesome seeds, and we've all done so many things in, in the long evolution through lifetimes and dependent upon conditions. You know, when conditions are favorable, we act in one way. Conditions are unfavorable, we may act in another way. Until we're awakened to the possibility of actually making a choice. And that's really where our character lies. That's where our strength lies. And that's the great power of mindfulness. We can't choose unless we see what's there. And in order to see what's there, we need to be paying attention. And you see, even in this short time of the retreat, you see the possibilities. How many times thoughts come and we're carried away? We don't know what's going on. And maybe a whole range of attendant feelings and emotions. And at other times, a thought comes and we're right there. And we see the basic emptiness of the thought, that it has no power at all. What is guilt? Is it a feeling or are there just guilty thoughts which one can label guilty thought, guilty thought, and then leave it? Guilt is quite an interesting phenomenon to understand because until we understand it, it can really plague the mind. Guilt comes very often in situations where we may have done something that was unskillful. In our speech, in our actions. There are two responses to having done an unskillful action. One response is that of guilt, which is the feeling of I'm so bad. It's a self-condemning. What's interesting about this state is that it is really a trick of the ego. It's an ego trick. It's the mind or the ego tricking us 
into solidifying a sense of self, of I, in a negative judgment. There's another possible response which you might think of as wise remorse, which is the sense of acknowledging, of understanding, of seeing that we've done something unskillful, understanding the unwholesomeness of it, and with wisdom, letting that be the force for a future restraint, all in the mental environment of forgiveness. In guilt, there's no forgiveness because we're solidifying this negative self-judgment. What was very helpful for me, there was one retreat I was doing where guilt was coming up very strongly about a particular situation. And it was coming so incessantly that I just became very interested in understanding how I was getting so hooked. Because the feeling was so unpleasant. And upon investigation, as soon as I saw that it was just this trick of Mara, Mara is the embodiment of ignorance and illusion, that it was a trick of the ego, I developed a new technique of practice, which is called wagging the finger at Mara. (laughs) Okay, Mara, I see you. And it was just... Seeing that it was this trick of the mind, the power of the guilt completely dissolved, then there was a genuine remorse. There was, there was a saying, okay, that was unskillful. I'll make the effort not to do that again, and then moving on. It's just helpful to understand where the guilt, where the guilt feeling comes from and to see that What's really happening is just a solidification of the sense of I. It has nothing really to do with the, with the actual experience. There were a few, there were many related questions. My experience is that humor is very close to the center of this. That is, humor is the gentle, compassionate experience of the bubble bursting. What do you think about this? With all the many and varied ways that the Buddha used to get his teachings across to people, did he ever use humor? In any sutta readings I've done or heard, there appears not an ounce of humor. (laughs) Sometimes this process manifests as quite funny. I wonder if the Buddha and his monks shared laughter. Why is the Buddha sometimes represented as fat and happy and smiling and others as in the meditation hall? (laughs) We pick our Buddhas carefully. (laughs) I think humor uh, is a big part of the practice. It's tremendously freeing. It does burst the bubble of are getting lost in the melodrama of things, of taking the content of what's happening so seriously. There must have been humor in the time of the Buddha because in good Buddhist fashion, there's a list. (laughs) 
of how different people uh, laugh. <laughs> and it said that ordinary, that ordinary worldling types kind of laugh and roll around on the floor. <laughs> Others a little more dignified <laughs> and a laugh out loud showing their teeth. <laughs> that Buddhas and Arhans just smile. <laughs> so my sense is that he did a lot of smiling. <laughs> In terms of the different Buddha images, actually the image that's often in the West that people think of as a Buddha rupa, a Buddha image of the, you know, the Buddha with the big ballet laughing, is actually not a representation of the Buddha. It's of one of the Chinese gods of good fortune. You know, so it's just a different representation. Um, Most of the images that have been most powerful for me of the Buddha somehow represent or embody just the feeling of the deepest peace and the most connected compassion. I think those are those are really the qualities that that exemplify the Buddha. Please talk more about staying present. That is what to focus on and not to lose it during transition from attention focused on one point to attention focused on daily activity. That is when leaving the cushion and then driving home. One of the easiest ways to practice a continuity of mindfulness, both in transition times here on retreat, as you get up from the sitting and you leave the hall, you go on through mealtime, whatever, is to cultivate this very strong mindfulness of the body. It's the first foundation of mindfulness. And in the suttas, which sutta means discourse of the Buddha, the Buddha gave a discourse just on mindfulness of the body. It was so powerful. And he said that mindfulness of the body leads to nibbana, leads to freedom, leads to the unconditioned. And so it's not a trivial or superficial practice. It's easy for us to work with the body in transition times because it's quite obvious. It's not a super subtle object. It's easy for us if we remember. It's the remembering that's difficult. It's not the mindfulness. If we can just remember to use the body as a vehicle, it can be as simple as being aware of our postures, of just we're sitting and then we watch how we stand. We feel ourselves as we move, as we reach for something, as we're turning. One of the things that has been so helpful to me about the walking meditation, you know, when having done it for thousands of hours over all these years, 
after some number of hours, I don't know how many, it actually becomes quite natural to be feeling the movement of the feet and legs as one walks. And that carries over a lot into one's life. You know, we practice it so much, it becomes second nature to us. As we're moving through our day, we are naturally aware of the body from having practiced it. That's why it's so valuable while you're here to see it as a training, to learn to practice being mindful of even the small body movements that you make. You're reaching for something. You're doing it anyway. It's not that there's something extra being done. We're moving. Can we train ourselves to be there, to feel it? It's very simple. And it's just practicing again and again to come back. This is really the key to the transition times, to living mindfully in the world. Don't underestimate the power that comes from paying attention to simple movements because it it becomes very uh, habituated in us after a while. It becomes effortless. Often you talk about softening or making space for a sensation, feeling, etc. To make space or soften, is there a sequence of shifting attention, say from this breath to body to sound of birds, or is it imagined soft space? This doesn't work for me because... This doesn't work for me. Hence, curiosity about what to be mindful of to allow softness or space to arise. It's it's interesting. I was teaching in Australia and using this phrase, you know, develop a soft mind. And evidently there, the connotation of a soft mind is, (laughs) you know, (laughs) It wasn't any great virtue. (laughs) So it's good to be quite explicit about what's meant. (laughs) When we say soft or spacious, what's meant is a quality of acceptance. And so, for example, you're with the breath and you feel perhaps uh, a sense of struggle happening or a sense of tightening around something. It could well mean that there is another object arising which the mind first is not attending to and not allowing. And so there are two steps to this. One is seeing what object is most predominant. That's the guideline for Vipassana practice. Be mindful of what is predominant in the moment. First step is just to see, to open to what's predominant. The second step is to see and observe carefully how we're relating to that object. Because often we can be with an object, but be with it with a reaction. We like it, so we're holding on tight. I don't want to lose this. Or we don't like it if it's painful. And there could be a feeling of fear, of contraction, of pushing away, of aversion, of irritation, of annoyance. 
None of those are what's meant by softness. Softness means seeing what's there and then relaxing into it. The, the mantra you can use at that time, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Whatever it is, it's okay. Let me feel it. That's the softening mode. It's not that one goes to any particular object in order to soften the mind. It's whatever it is that's predominant. Whatever It's a pain, it's a thought, it's a sound. To really work with the sense of allowing. You know, often in meditative um, talk, we speak of letting go of things. You know, let go of thoughts, let go of emotions, let go of the pain. That's not exactly right. A better phrase to work with in your practice is not so much letting go, which implies that you need to do something, Rather work with the phrase, let it be. Just let it be. Let it be. Everything is coming and going by itself. And so we don't have to do anything to make it go or to let it go. We just have to let it be. You can start singing to yourself. Let it be. Let it be. Okay, this... Many around this one. Please discuss no self and what's beyond it. Can you say something about the ego and do we have to become enlightened in order to lose the ego and sense of self? I don't understand the concept of selflessness. Could you talk about this idea? If there's no self, then what is it about us? What part of us is it that reincarnates and moves on to another life? This is a related question, although it may not sound like it. The other night you referred to the Buddhist saying that both the eternalist and annihilationist views of death were incorrect. Could you please explain the Buddhist view of death? How do we reconcile the power of our role constellations in the world with the idea of selflessness or that we are just aggregates of arising conditions? Who, where, or what does intention come from? Selflessness. I could get off easy because Sharon is going to be talking about this tomorrow. But I'll say a little. The understanding of selflessness comes not from the destruction of something which we call self or ego. The great awakening or discovery of the Buddha was that there was no self to begin with, that it was just a thought, just a concept. And so the understanding of selflessness very simply comes from a careful dropping into awareness of what actually is happening moment to moment. 
When we do that, what do we find? We find that in every moment, there's an object, sight, a sound, a smell, a taste, a sensation, a thought. There's an object arising and the knowing of an object. In every moment, that's what's there. There's knowing and an object arising and passing. And in the next moment, knowing and an object arising and passing. As we begin to get into the practice, it doesn't take too long to get even a beginning sense that the objects are not self. Because we see how they just keep coming and going. They're very impermanent. Thought comes and goes, and a sound comes and goes, and sensation comes and goes. And so when we're just on that level of changing objects, of seeing that, we begin to understand, that's not me, that's not me, that's not me. It's, It's gone in the moment of noticing. Where we get stuck very often is in the sense that the knower is me. That's who I am. I'm the one who's knowing all these changing objects. Because the knowing is much more subtle than the objects. And so it's very difficult for us to be mindful of knowing. As our concentration develops, as the mind's power of steadiness and stillness and clarity get stronger, there, comes time, there come times in the practice when we actually can be aware of this process of knowing. And we begin to see that the knowing itself is arising and passing with each object. That the knowing is not something steady which is receiving things, this permanent sense of I or witness or observer, Rather, the knowing itself, like the object, arising and passing, arising and passing. This is a very unsettling insight. Because here's this faculty of knowing which we had taken to be who we are, we're taken to be our soul, our self, our center. And we see that it too, just like the objects, are in a state of continual passing away. There's an image describing something of this sequence. It's as if somebody drops out of an airplane and the first few minutes is just kind of free falling and there's this exhilaration. And then at a certain time, this person realizes that they don't have a parachute. So then there's panic and fear and terror. and So then they're falling, 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 filled with fear and terror that they have no parachute until a certain moment when they realize there's no ground. (laughs) So then one just enjoys the ride. (laughs) 
this is what we go through in the practice. You know, as things loosen up a little bit and we see the rapidity of change, at first there can be a real exhilaration and then all of a sudden real panic can set in. There's nothing to hold on to. It's all just moving, both the object and the sense of subject and the sense of knowing. And so there's a real fear because everything that we've held on to for security, we see there's no security. But as we do this, as we settle into that process, at a certain point, we realize there's no ground. That it's all just empty phenomena coming and going. And then there's the sense of great release, relief. A real sense of letting go of equanimity um, and a real deep sense of ease. Who is it that's reborn? If there's no self, where does rebirth fit into this? To say that there's no self means there is no permanent entity which is carried from lifetime to lifetime or from moment to moment. It's like if you have a piece of wax and a seal and you imprint the wax with the seal, take the seal away, the imprint is there. But there's nothing of the seal that remains in the wax. There's no piece that's gone into the wax. But each moment is imprinting the next, imprinting the next, imprinting the next. So there is a continuity, which is why we recognize each other and we recognize ourselves moment to moment, day to day. There's a continuity to the process, but there is no one thing which which gets carried. There's no little soul in here, or self, or I, little capsule, It's a process of becoming. It's a process of continual transformation. This, becoming this, becoming this, becoming this. It's like when you plant a seed in the ground and the seed grows into a sapling, into a tree, the tree bears fruit, new seed. That first seed is not pulled up through the trunk and then miraculously splits into all those other little seeds. No. The seed is undergoing a process of transformation due to certain conditions. The seed becomes this, becomes sapling, becomes tree. That's what's happening within this very lifetime, and we can observe this process of each moment conditioning the next, conditioning the next. Death consciousness conditions rebirth consciousness. There's nothing which is carried over But just as it's being conditioned moment to moment, it's being conditioned from life to life. That's why there's so much care and consideration given to the quality of mind at the moment of death. This understanding, for me, has been a big help in inspiring interest during times of difficulty. You know, you're sitting in the practice and maybe there's a great deal of physical pain or emotional pain. If you think of it in the context of training for dying, suppose this were your dying moments, your dying sitting. 
how is the mind going to be? And here's a difficulty coming up. How do we want to be with that difficulty? How do we want to be in that moment? We can use these opportunities to really train ourselves to see that there is a possibility to be with anything, with balance, with a sense of peace, with a sense of acceptance. Within this process of becoming, of conditions arising and passing, arising and passing, it's the understanding that this process is not happening to, any, to anyone behind it. It's not that there's a being behind it to whom it's happening. What we call self is this changing process. An example which I've used very often to understand the difference between self and selflessness. Did I talk in the whole group about uh, the Big Dipper? No. Okay. A lot of you have heard this. (laughs) You might get enlightened hearing it this time. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you go outside at night, you look up at the sky, and if you're at all familiar with this, night sky, you you can see the Big Dipper. There's no Big Dipper. (laughs) (laughs) There really isn't a Big Dipper up there. (laughs) Big Dipper is a concept. We We have looked, we see a certain pattern, we've put a certain concept on it. What does that concept do? It's really interesting. By putting that concept on that particular constellation of stars, we are separating out those stars from all the other stars. Is that separation actually in the sky? No. We have created that through the use of that concept. Joseph is just the same as Big Dipper. Joseph is a concept, it's a name, given to a certain pattern of elements. Just like Big Dipper is a name given to the pattern of stars. To understand that there's no Big Dipper, does anything change in the sky? No. That's what's so amazing about this. It's not that the understanding of selflessness changes anything, except our understanding of how things actually are. The stars up there remain the same, and the pattern remains the same. We just see that the concept which is separating it all does not exist as some independent thing, as some independent being. Joseph and each one of us is exactly like this. There is a pattern of elements in a relationship and they're all continually changing. There is a continuity to this change, which is why we recognize the pattern. But what's happened is we have become so identified with the concept that we've fallen into this great illusion 
that there's someone here, there's some being, there's some unchanging entity which is me. And the thrust of the practice is to break through this illusion so we can just sit and be with what's actually happening just like we could sit very quietly looking up at the stars until we let go of the attachment to that concept Big Dipper. We see that, oh yeah, there's just stars. There's just thoughts, sensations, sounds, the knowing of them in each moment, that's what's here. It's extremely freeing. Because when we can get past this notion that there's some self, some unchanging self, that there's someone behind the process, we're no longer so compelled to defend things or to gratify it or to aggrandize it or to... We can just let go increasingly of all that and simply settle into this unfolding process. Then choice can be made based not on delusion, not on ignorance. Choice, which is another element in this process of change, can be made conditioned by wisdom, conditioned by compassion. So this life process becomes a manifestation then of the degree of wisdom there is and the degree of compassion there is. One Sri Lankan monk summed it up very well. He said, no self, no problem. (laughs) 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 The important thing is the understanding and sometimes people get fearful of the idea of selflessness. Oh, what will that mean? I'm going to lose something. It's not losing anything. Everything stays just the same. And we're just seeing it as it is. We're seeing the arising and passing of phenomena moment after moment. Can you speak about your own experience integrating the practice and teachings in the outside world? When you have more than you can handle doing in 24 hours, when people are being manipulative or critical of you, when you feel like there's too much coming at you at once, you come to IMS. <laughs> I work in a stressful, high-tech environment where there is often little time to step back and study someone's underlying insecurities when they're coming at me like a steamroller. It seems that when I reach deeper levels of understanding on retreat, I fear going back out there because it's such hard work. I'm scared that the practice will take me farther away from the world, as crazy as the world is, and as much as I love the practice. This is related. No doubt a common concern. How does one best deal with family members who are hostile towards my study of Buddhism? There is a There is final judgment without any real knowledge of the subject or willingness to know or understand it or myself. 
This is particularly frustrating as these people are highly intelligent, politically and socially aware, and quite left of center. <laughs> but put down anybody or anything relating to religion. I notice there are not too many enlightened beings who have teenagers with boom boxes. <laughs> Please, what are the skillful means when our own flesh brings into the kitchen each night such alien values? <laughs> How to remain equanimous? there are two aspects to this that we could look at. One is how to deal with situations that we can't change and then to see or look at situations and see if there's a possibility of effecting some change. So in the, basically in all of these, The key first step, I think, is taking responsibility for one's own reactions so that we're not blaming people or situations outside ourselves for how we're feeling. Because as long as that mode is in place, it's going to be very hard to actually deal with the situation in a balanced way. We have to see that if there's anger, if there's annoyance, if there's irritation, if there's whatever it is, that our relationship to those feelings is our responsibility. The feelings may be conditioned by certain circumstances, but what's our relationship to those feelings? That's the key. Are we getting identified? Are we getting lost? Are we getting hooked in our reaction? Or can we make space and we soften our minds around those reactions so we're not so identified with them. So as we make that space, then it's a lot easier for these reactions of mind to come and go. We're not so locked into them. This takes a lot of practice. And in the midst of an intense situation, if one has not practiced this before, it's going to be very difficult. It's in that respect that I see retreats, again, really as a training time. You know, some difficult emotion comes up. This is the time to practice looking at the relationship to it. Because you have the space, you have the time, you have the environment to do that here. Anger comes, fear comes, annoyance comes, hatred comes, fear comes. As you're sitting and these come up, can you be mindful of it? Or is there a strong identification with those emotions? I'm so angry. I'm so fearful. Just to see this, see the different ways we relate in the mind to these different emotions. The second step in the world, in, in life situations, once we have worked to some extent 
at clearing our own minds, then I think it's a process of communication. And really being willing to communicate about a difficult situation, not from a place of blame, because that's not an effective way of communicating. And just to see, through communication, can something be changed? Can the boom boxes be played down the block? Can somebody who's coming on really strong and heavy, is it possible to say, to communicate, hey, well, this doesn't feel right, this doesn't feel good. Again, not from an angry place particularly, not from a blaming place, because we've done that work in ourselves before. Sometimes people confuse meditative values and the, the value of acceptance with kind of just you know, being in this world in this very wishy-washy way and letting anybody do anything and never and taking a stand. That's not it at all. The acceptance has to do with taking responsibility for our own mind states, not judging, not getting caught, really being mindful. And then it's very possible to actually take a very strong stand or to initiate some very effective communication. We don't just have to kind of roll over. The energy with which it's done is all important. Sometimes we do that step and the situation is out of our control. The things are not going to change. And that's when we really need to stay very centered actually in ourselves, in our bodily awareness, so that we're not getting caught again in a reaction to what's happening. I had this situation years ago. I was uh, in India and I was on this very long bus ride. It was really uncomfortable. The buses are small and it was like a 17-hour bus ride, you know, in hard seats and jammed in and I'm pretty big and, and the bus was just rattling, you know, and vibrating. <laughs> and I could just, I mean, I was sitting there and my mind was not liking it. <laughs> and not only not liking it in the moment, but projecting the not liking it over the next 17 hours, you know, in the moment which didn't help. And at some point, I just saw I could either go on being very tense and reactive to this very unpleasant situation, or I could just open and actually get into the noise, which was incredible. There were lots of radios and loud talking and this intense vibration that was going on. And I just, okay. Just, and it really became... I don't know if I could go so far to say enjoyable. <laughs> but it really lost that edge of being a problem. Because it was just opening. I let the vibrations go through my body. I was just... <laughs> you know. And I was just watching. I was just feeling that instead of fighting it. I just was listening to the sounds, letting the sounds come through instead of trying to put up a wall to keep them out. And so in situations that are beyond our control, that are unpleasant, there is a way to stay centered. Again, it takes practice. It takes what we're doing here, that willingness to open 
to unpleasant things, to see that it's okay to feel them instead of the fear of unpleasant things or the defensiveness about unpleasant things. It's amazing how strongly conditioned in our minds is the view that if we have a pleasant sitting, it was a good meditation. And if it's been an unpleasant sitting, something's off, something's a little wrong. That is totally inappropriate with respect to the practice. Pleasure and pain or comfort and discomfort have nothing to do with the quality of the meditation. It has to do with how open we are to what's there. And so in times of discomfort, that's the time to practice for all these life situations that are uncomfortable. How are we we relating to them? (laughs) Well, it just reminds me of more stories. (laughs) One time I was was practicing up in uh, the hill stations in India. I rented a house for the summer months. Just this kind of little house high up on the mountain. Exquisitely beautiful, very quiet. Uh, I just have three or four or five months just to sit and look. A few weeks after I came, just in kind of a clearing below this house, the Delhi girls came, <laughs> which was a kind of Girl Scout paramilitary something, I don't know. <laughs> Camping out, they hooked up these loudspeakers. <laughs> From 6 in the morning till about 10 or 11 at night, they were blasting this music. I couldn't believe it. <laughs> you know, and I was kind of thinking of writing to the mayor of the town, <laughs> but it didn't seem to bother anybody else. It was a great challenge to the old equanimity. <laughs> but... After going through all the struggles and all the anger and all the resentment, at a certain point the mind surrenders. There's nothing to do about this. And in the surrender, okay, there's the sound, there's the noise. And I just let it be. And it was fine. It's just so interesting over and over again to see those situations which we think are intolerable and actually it's our own defensiveness, which is making them intolerable. It's our inability just to be with it, just to open to it. And so a lot of our practice is about this. And we're just extending our limits of what we're willing to be with. We see it with pain. How much can we just be with in a soft way before we close off? Before we say, this is too much. Difficult emotions. Can we just be with it and see it and feel it? really makes us very strong in our lives. We hear a lot about attainment, about persevering across lifetimes, about becoming free of greed, hatred, and delusion, and about the excitement of exploration. Could you speak some about the peace of the mind, about Nibbana, about the about that which is always present, which is not bound by time. 
You have described meditation as a cumulative process, yet the Vipassana tradition is a tradition of sudden enlightenment. How does this jibe? Also, could you discuss whether discuss sudden versus gradual enlightenment traditions in, in Zen or Tibet? Until this retreat, I thought that enlightenment was a sudden experience. I'd read an account of a Zen nun and her experience of Satori. Now I have the feeling that enlightenment is something that builds gradually over time and not just a flash in the moment. Could you talk about the first enlightenment experience and if it is something sudden, will I recognize it if I'm at home alone? (laughs) (laughs) And not in a retreat. (laughs) Maybe that's not very likely, however. Those questions all, there's there's a lot contained in them. With respect to this raging issue over the last 2,500 years of whether enlightenment is sudden or gradual, this has always seemed to me a very uh, inappropriate question. The moment of enlightenment is always sudden. It's always just intuitive. It's an intuitive going along, going along, and there's an opening to something we didn't understand before, didn't see before. So in that sense, it's sudden. All the time it took up to that point is gradual. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't quite get the <laughs> get the dilemma. You know, it's both gradual and it's sudden. There's a preparation of the mind which allows for that opening. Some traditions have mapped out this preparation of the mind very, very precisely and divided into steps and stages and this and that. And so it looks like it's describing a gradual path. Other traditions don't map it out so much but still spend 20 years practicing, or 10 years, or one year, or one week. Whether the the preparation is mapped in a tradition or not, there is the coming to balance of the factors of enlightenment. There are seven factors of enlightenment which need to be ripened and matured. It's mindfulness, It's investigation, that power of investigating, which is really the wisdom factor. There's the factor of rapture, which is interest. That's why it's so important to really arouse this quality of interest in what's happening. It's a factor of enlightenment. The energy or effort of calm, of concentration and equanimity. This is the preparation, these qualities, and they're they're attributes of all our minds. This is what we're strengthening. We're strengthening these. When they are in balance, there is an opening. This opening 
can happen at any time because the unconditioned or Nibbana or unborn or whatever name you want to use is always present. It's not that it's out there and we have to get there. It's always present and we simply have to create the balance of mind which can open to it. That's why in practice it's not a striving for something. It's not a reaching out for something. It's a settling back. It's a settling back in balance. You balance in this moment, and balance in this, and balance in this, until that poise, that mental equilibrium is so steady. Out of that steadiness is an opening. Along the way, the word Nibbana means, the literal meaning of the word is to blow out or to make cool. And I think it's interesting that that's the word the Buddha chose to use. He, he, He used a word to describe a certain experience. It's interesting that that's the word he chose, to make cool. What is making cool? What, what are we making cool? We're making cool the fire of greed, the fire of hatred, the fire of delusion. These are the qualities in the mind which are burning. And so we can understand this making cool in many places along the way. Now, Just every time the mind is caught in some defilement, in some kilesa, and we become mindful, we step out of it, in that moment we're making cool, we're making the mind cool. As the concentration grows, we live in this coolness to a much greater extent. We're not so, com- we're not so subject to these raging fires because our mind is more concentrated. So there's a cooling out, there's a nibbana-ing, just through the power of concentration. At a certain point, we begin to appreciate that the very process itself, not only kind of the force of greed and hatred, but the very process itself of arising and passing away is a kind of fire. And so Nibbana at that level can mean the ceasing of that process. And just as a, there's an example which I think you'll relate to, which will give you a taste or a flavor of what this can mean. Now, if you're in a room, if you're in a kitchen, and there's a background hum of the refrigerator, you know, and mostly we're in the room and we're not even aware of it. It's just kind of there until the moment when it stops. Just remember the feeling you have when it stops. 
And I was like, ah, peace. We didn't even know that it was disturbing us until it stopped. But from the perspective of it having stopped, we see the burdensomeness of that constant hum. This mind-body is like a hum. It's like the refrigerator hum. Nibbana is like the silence. It's not nothing. It's actually...
there's a very nice uh, sort of poem which I don't have with me but I'll just kind of paraphrase a line or two it's in a book compiled by Thomas Merton it's called The Way of Chuang Tzu and it's just kind of uh, Thomas Merton collected different of the teachings of Chuang Tzu the, the Taoist sage and it's a very beautiful collection this one particular poem is entitled Starlight and Non-Being. And it's all about starlight going off in search of non-being. And starlight goes throughout the vast reaches of the universe. But it can never find non-being. And the last the last line of the poem, which sort of sums up the the mystery of this. I'm just trying to think of the line or two before. (laughs) There was something about starlight calling for non-being and there's no answer. And looking for non-being and can't find it. And then if on top of this non-being is, who can comprehend it? That's the mystery. So this mystery of being and non-being and the isness of non-being. Okay, maybe just uh, there were there were many many interesting questions. Just uh, is there a force that seems to push us along the path, even when we cannot yet make totally conscious choices? Is there a place for grace in the Buddhist cosmology? There's a question about understanding taking refuge in the Dharma. That was a really uh, important question. Just the place of grace or the force that kind of pushes us along. It's not a grace in the sense of some being extending grace to us. It doesn't have that kind of connotation. Rather, the grace in Buddhism is related to this force which pushes us along even when we're not totally conscious or totally awake. And that is the force of paramis. And parami means the accumulated force, basically the accumulated force of virtues that have been practiced like generosity, like morality, like concentration, like wisdom, like love, like compassion. All the wholesome forces of mind throughout the many lifetimes to the extent that they have been practiced, they are a force within this process, within this unfolding process. 
And they keep pushing us along. It is the power of these paramis which make possible the opening to all of the different levels of Nibbana, to all the different levels of cooling out. And so what's, what's interesting in this notion is that we really see that the power of grace is contained within us. It's the power of these wholesome forces of the mind. The reason that we're all here in practicing, that there are very, very few people in this world, either who have the opportunity or among those who have the opportunity who have the slightest interest in pursuing a path of awakening. It doesn't even enter people's minds that there's a possibility to awaken, to really become free. What brings us here? Not by accident. There is some very powerful force at work. Because it's certainly not in our society or in our culture which is saying to do it. But there's something within each of us that keeps, keeps pushing us and driving us, even when it's difficult. That's the force of our own paramis. And so understanding that, it really helps establish, one, establish one's practice in a place of great respect, really a self-respect. Not self in the sense of I or ego, but just self in a sense of respect for our own process that we've done a lot to be here. And this is the grace. This is the real potential that, that keeps pushing us along. The Buddha said so often, and when you read the text and you read his teachings, he said so often, don't neglect to do or cultivate wholesome states of mind. Because the opportunity for that is not always present. In many realms of existence, in many circumstances of life, so don't neglect because it's a power. And this is the power of this, these paramis. And that's what makes the whole unfolding of awakening possible. Let's sit for a few minutes. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.